I don't know what Christmas traditions look like in your home, but in my family, one of the annual practices that you can count on at the holidays is storytelling. Without fail, there will be a moment when we're all gathered together. It might be at the dinner table or perhaps when we're gathered around the tree. You never really see it coming, but inevitably someone leads the charge and the recollections from Christmas's past begin to roll. For the most part, I love this tradition. It's fun to recall memories of those we once sat with there who are no longer with us. Remember how certain traditions that we play out every year came to pass. It's even fun to remember years that didn't exactly go to plan. We've had a number of those in my family. There was the year we had a small kitchen fire when someone attempted to impress us by making creme brulee for dessert. From that moment on, power tools were banned from the kitchen at the holidays. There was also the year there were 29 of us gathered under one roof for the weekend when suddenly the sewer decided to back up. Needless to say, we were not met with the seasonal fragrances Pastor Eric mentioned last week during that Christmas celebration. When these stories start to fly, I'm usually all about it. To be honest, I always come locked and loaded, ready with my own recollections and remembrances of Christmases gone by. But there's always that one story that I wish we could all just forget. Anybody know what I mean? That one story that I just wanna say, can we let this go? It's been decades and ha ha, yeah, that's funny, but really, kill it. And yet that story always gets told, always. It even seems to grow a little bit every year, laced with hyperbole or exaggeration for dramatic effect. So in an attempt to just get this out of the way, I decided that I'm gonna beat my family to the punch and just tell you one of those stories this morning. How's that for Christmas spirit? (laughs) You see, growing up, my parents deemed one particular room of their house off limits to us kids. They never specifically told us why this was the case, but we weren't dumb. We knew it's because that's where they hid all of the Christmas loot. And so rightfully, we had the fear of God in us about entering that room from about December 1st through Christmas morning. One December, when I was four years old, my dad returned home from a shopping trip and he had a bag in his hand. And it occurred to me that that bag had not yet made it to the mysterious Christmas room. Therefore, it was still technically open for investigation. And so I started to snoop hard. I started to ask incessant questions. Dad, what's in the bag? Where did it come from? Who's it for? Is it for me? When can I open it? On and on and on until finally my dad said, shh, it's a Christmas surprise for your mom. And while this was too wonderful in my four-year-old heart and mind, I had been entrusted with a piece of a Christmas secret. Magical. But I wanted more. And I was relentless. I followed my dad through the house like an obnoxious puppy dog until he got to that door of the forbidden room. And just before he entered and inevitably closed that proverbial iron curtain that separated me from all the Christmas joy, I tried one more time. I begged him. I said, Dad, can you please tell me what we got, Mom, for Christmas? And to my great surprise, he let me in the room. But once we got there, he became very serious. He got down on one knee, right at eye level with me, and he said, Emily, are you sure 
you really want to know what's in this bag. Because if I show you, you have to keep a secret. Can you do that? Can you obey? Of course I could do that. No problem. And so I responded as any good preschooler might. I nodded my head emphatically, even symbolically covered my mouth with my hand, demonstrating that I could keep this secret. And in a moment of great trust, my dad handed me the bag, let me inspect its contents, and I oohed and awed in delight until he took it back from me and then escorted me out of the promised land of Christmas to come and back into the real world of Christmas purgatory, <laughs> where I obeyed. I kept that secret till my mom showed up about 10 seconds later at which point it occurred to me he never specified how long I needed to keep this secret. And before I knew what was happening, as if some supernatural force took over my faculties, the words came blundering out of my mouth, Mom, we got you underwear for Christmas. It was not my finest moment. It was not one that my family has ever let me live down either. It's a ridiculous story, I realize, and I was just four years old. But in thinking about that story, I started to wonder how often we have a similarly isolated or perhaps partial understanding of obedience. I wonder how often we view it only as merely fulfilling a fleeting command or request, like training a dog to sit or stay. I wonder how often we think of obedience as something that is momentary, something to be conquered or completed, something we can check off the to-do list. And so as we've been contemplating the role obedience plays in listening to the voice of God during this Advent season, I started to wonder if it would be a good idea for us to revisit the fullness of all obedience truly entails. So I've been reading through the gospels again these past few weeks. And this time it stood out to me that in a really beautiful way, we are given a holistic picture of all obedience entails in the people of Mary and Joseph and in the roles they played in helping bring God's plan of salvation into the world. Both of these accounts that we just heard read have a number of striking similarities. Both involve an angel visiting a human and delivering a message from God. And both of these angelic messages mention that Mary will conceive, that she will give birth to a son. Both of these messages tell the parents to be that they are to give the child the name of Jesus. And yet as I read these stories this time around, what struck me is what we can learn or relearn about what obedience truly is as a result of what's different in these two accounts of the Christmas story. We'll begin with Mary. Luke says, Gabriel greets her by saying, greetings favored one or favored woman which is interesting because based on the text, we don't know a whole lot about Mary. We can't assume that she is chosen to be the mother of Jesus because of any specific quality or virtue that she might've possessed because we simply don't have that information. 
And so right from the get-go, as we approach this story, we have to do as New Testament scholar Fred Craddock points out and trust that the reasons Mary is selected for her role in this epic story of salvation are tucked away in the purposes of God. They are not known to us. But whatever those reasons may have been, we can all agree Mary's given quite a mission, isn't she? As a teenage girl who had been raised in a devout Jewish home, I'm guessing that part of Gabriel's message sounded familiar to Mary. She probably recognized words from the prophecies. She knew about a coming Messiah that would save her people. And she probably even lived in the hope that he was coming someday soon. But for all the words of this angel's message that were familiar to Mary, I'm also guessing there were many that were terrifying and confusing. The angel says, not only has Mary found favor with God for reasons unbeknownst to us and probably unbeknownst to her as well, but also that she, a teenage virgin, is going to conceive and give birth to a baby Messiah. The angel goes on and is detailed in describing this child. He says that Jesus will be great, that he'll be called the son of the most high, that the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and that he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. I don't want to speak for Mary here, but I'm sure thinking this would be a lot for anybody to take in at one time, don't you think? Particularly a child, a teenager. And that makes her response to the angel in my mind all the more unimaginable. She takes all this in and then she responds with just one question. And while it was a good one, hey, how is this gonna happen? I have to imagine that if I had been in Mary's shoes, I would have been pressing for a few more details here. I think I would have said, First starters, why me? Because <laughs> it seems there's any other number of girls, women even here, who are better prepared for this kind of responsibility. I'd have asked Gabriel, what is my family going to say about this? Because I'm not thinking this is the kind of news most families receive real well from their teenage daughter. When I was in college, I had a friend who was taking a New Testament survey class and her professor challenged his students to try and find a way to put themselves in Mary's position. Try to imagine what it would have been like to communicate this message she had received from the angel a little more widely. So she went home for the weekend and upon entering her home, she found her father a Bible-believing, faith-filled Christian pastor who was reclining in his lazy boy watching the evening news. And she walked in and said, hi, dad. Um, what would you say if I told you that I'm still a virgin, but uh, I have conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and I'm going to bear the Son of God? And without missing a beat and never taking his eyes off the television, her dad said, I'd say, think again. It's about right, isn't it? If I had been in Mary's shoes, I'm pretty sure I would have asked Gabriel to stick around for a bit, 
to communicate this message a little more widely so that those in my community didn't think this was a fig newton of my imagination, that I was making up a story to cover up some inappropriate behavior. I think I would have asked Gabriel, what does a baby God look like in the first place? Does he just emerge wearing a crown, holding a scepter, ready to rule the world? Or are there steps that have to take place between here and there? Even beyond the questions Mary did or did not ask of Gabriel, I wonder if in the heat of this moment, she made the connection that based on the specifics Gabriel gave her, Joseph was gonna have to be involved somewhere in this process. After all, he was the descendant of David, right? Not her. And so if Gabriel's message was true that this child would be given the throne of David, maybe she found a little bit of hope in this terrifying moment that perhaps her betrothal to Joseph was still on the table. That's all the crazy directions my brain would have gone. I'm sure I could come up with several others. But Luke tells us that Mary doesn't get bogged down in these details. She simply asked the angelic visitor, how can this be? She gets a response, right? The Holy Spirit's gonna come upon her. The power of the Most High is gonna overshadow her and the baby will be holy and called the Son of God. Okay. But I think given the situation, a little more detail might be in order here. Don't you think? Basically, Mary is given a large-scale overview of this outrageous plan, but there are no details given to her about how this is all gonna go down. She's given the big picture view, and of course, God knew that her faith was strong enough in him to believe he could accomplish these things through her. But the truth is, she wasn't given a step-by-step outline of how this was all gonna go down she didn't know what would be required of her in the days and the weeks and the months and the years that were ahead. Instead, she just replies with that line we know so well, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. It blows my mind, really. She didn't ask for 24 hours to think about it. She didn't ask to consult with a few close friends or mentors or make a pros and cons list before she could respond to this offer. With just this long-term, seemingly outrageous vision of what would be eventually someday in the distant future, Mary consents to this unimaginable plan. And from that moment on, she will spend the rest of her life navigating the cost of that decision. So as I've revisited this story this year, I've learned again that many times obedience is more than saying yes to something in a moment. It's more than committing or agreeing to that which is temporary. Instead, it is a commitment to an ongoing and often very uncertain journey. We know that obeying the voice and the call of God here would cost Mary dearly not only in this moment of her acceptance of the call, but every day for the rest of her life. And you know, I thought about that this week 
We never read of Mary being revisited by Gabriel or any other angel of the Lord in her lifetime. It's not in the scripture. We don't know of it if it happened. So we have to assume she didn't get another visit where she was told how to navigate the ridicule and the rejection and the rebuff she undoubtedly received when she shared this news, the news of her teenage pregnancy with her community. She didn't have another visit from God's messenger telling her how to deal with the sudden and traumatic reality of having to leave her homeland for fear of her child's life. There was no further instruction she received about being a refugee alone with a new baby and a husband she barely knew with no promise of ever being able to come home again. She wasn't warned that this moment was about so much more than just the regular hard stuff new parents face. Dirty diapers, sleepless nights, teenagers. She received no angel visit that we're aware of that would prepare her for the turn of events she'd experience in watching her son shift from being a beloved and followed teacher and healer to a fugitive who would be killed by those who didn't understand and who hated him all right before her very eyes. She wouldn't told any of that part of the story. And so in Mary, we are reminded again that obedience isn't that which we only commit to once we have all the details. But so often when God calls us, when he speaks to us, he gives us only an outline or a sketch of what he's doing we get the promise of something that seems nearly impossible without all the particulars laid out for us and we're asked to obediently walk forward, navigating those details and the challenges almost blindly as they unfold piece by piece. Then we have Joseph's side of the story that Matthew captures for us in his gospel. Somehow Joseph learns that Mary is pregnant though she is insistent that she has not been unfaithful, that she has conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet understandably, Joseph is a little nervous. You can't blame him, can you? I mean, no matter how good of guy Joseph was, the story was a little bit sketchy. And yet Matthew describes for us Joseph the just, who does not respond to this development with any anger or malice. Instead, he decides to break the engagement with Mary quietly. He seeks to separate himself from this situation that could ruin both of their lives, but he desires to do so in a way that preserves Mary's dignity and that protects her in any way he possibly can. And so as he's making these arrangements, Joseph, just like Mary, is also visited by an angel. But his visit comes in the form of a dream in that dream, Joseph's given basically the same information Mary had, that she would conceive, or she had conceived in the case of Joseph, that she would bear a son and that Joseph should marry his fiance and then take the child and give him the name of Jesus. That's pretty much it though. That's what Joseph knew. The angel says, hey, Joseph, I have one thing for you. Take Mary as your wife and for the time being, that's all I got. I counted this week. 
Joseph is given three sentences. Three. And so every time I read those three sentences, I try to imagine what his immediate response must have been. Did he wake up from this dream in a cold sweat? Did he sit on the edge of his bed with his head in his hands trying to figure out what it meant if this really was from God or if he just had too much baklava the night before? Whatever his immediate response was, he apparently reached it rather quickly because Matthew tells us that he woke up and he did as he was told. He did the next right thing. He followed the angel's instructions obediently, taking Mary as his wife and giving the baby the name of Jesus, which culturally speaking meant he adopted the child as his own. And so in the vein of obedience, what stands out to me about Joseph's story is that he wasn't given the greater landscape of what was transpiring here. He wasn't given the details about a child inheriting a throne or having an everlasting kingdom. Maybe he could have inferred some of these things based on his knowledge of the prophecies, but in terms of the voice of God and what he actually heard in this encounter, there was no long range vision given. And I have to wonder if in this moment, Joseph could fully comprehend what obedience would truly require of him. He probably got as far as recognizing that being obedient, taking a pregnant Mary as his wife would likely cost him some chips, serious chips in his community. He would be looked down upon His character would be called into question. He would likely be shamed for breaking the customs and the traditions of his people. I'm guessing Joseph could probably imagine the physical cost that would come to him in this, that he would suddenly have two more mouths he was responsible to feed, two more people that he had to shelter and protect. But the reality is, Joseph was given very little in terms of what all this was leading to, what greater purposes his obedience would serve. He didn't sit on the side of history we sit on today. He didn't see the plan of salvation that we understand unfolded as a result of his actions. And what's more, he had no idea that this would not be the only time God asked him to take this kind of leap of faith. Matthew tells us that three more times, Joseph was visited by an angel in a dream. This poor guy. We're told that shortly after Jesus' birth, an angel came and visited Joseph in a dream and told him to get up, take his wife and the child and leave the land of Israel and go to Egypt because Herod was massacring babies. A few years later, dream angel shows up again, this time telling Joseph it's time to go home head back in the other direction. And so he gets up. And even as he is being obedient, even as he is carrying out what God asks of him, he has yet another visit from the angel in a dream, this time telling him, go a different route, head to the land of Nazareth. In each of those instances, what I notice is that Joseph isn't given any any explanation as to why he should do these things. We don't read that he was shown glimpses of what would come as a result of his obedience in any of these actions. The truth is, 
What we know about Joseph based on the gospels is very little. But what is quite clear is that he was faithful to execute these singular steps of obedience without any real assurance regarding what they would amount to. And so I've been reminded through Joseph that sometimes obedience just means doing the next right thing and then remaining vigilant for whatever else God may ask of us next. I'm reminded that we're not always given a greater vision or plan of what will eventually transpire. We're simply called to trust and believe in God's unbelievable and often unseen plan. So we've been learning a lot as a church this fall about what it means to listen for God's voice, what it means to be sure that we have interpreted his voice correctly. And I don't know about you, but I feel a little like I've been drinking out of a fire hydrant. I'm learning a lot about this and where I fall short. And so as I've considered obedience and as we think about that cycle of posturing, scripturing, discerning, and finally obeying, it's here in that listening cycle where I find myself struggling the most Because if you're anything like me, this is the place where it's so easy to hesitate, to start peppering God with questions, to start demanding more and more information and renegotiating in my heart and mind what obedience really is. Maybe some of you have been called to something big. God has given you a huge picture of his promise in your life, similar to Mary, And yet because you've only been shown the destination and not the travel plan, you find yourself dragging your feet, telling God that he's gonna have to give you some of the details in order for you to be able to trust and believe and act on his calling. Others of you may find yourself like Joseph. You find yourselves hearing one specific word from the Lord. He's asking you to do one specific next right thing, but that thing is so counterintuitive and so countercultural and seems like it will come to you at such a great cost. Because he hasn't given you the greater picture of what that one thing will lead to, you find yourself pumping the brakes, demanding that you should know more before you are obliged to act. If you find yourself in either of those situations today, I wanna challenge you in this special season to revisit the Christmas story, to look again at Mary and Joseph and any of the other characters who so clearly demonstrate for us what obedience to God truly means. And as you look at that story again with fresh eyes, I pray that you'll recognize that in order to truly obey God's voice, you're gonna have to accept that sometimes he's not gonna give you all the pieces to the puzzle. You probably couldn't handle them if you had them, and he knows that. But he's asking you to trust that he'll work it out in his time and in his way. And for today, what he simply desires from you is that you would say, I am the Lord's servant. And to commit yourself once again to the long journey of obedience.